Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to Motos and Friends, a weekly podcast brought to you by the editors of Ultimate Motorcycling. My name is Arthur Coldwells. I'm not sure if it's his first love on two wheels, but it's safe to say that editor Don Williams is a dirt bike nut. He rode competitive trials for over 30 years, and he and his wife ride every weekend, and sometimes more, on every type of off-road machine they can lay their hands on. He now tells us of his recent experiences on the Kawasaki KX250X, a cross-country dirt bike that seems to work pretty well. The guest segment of Motos and Friends is brought to you by the faster and most technologically advanced 2023 Suzuki Hayabusa. It's one of the most iconic sport bikes ever. Check it out in person at your local Suzuki dealer now, or visit suzukicycles.com to learn more. In our second segment, editor-at-large Neil Bailey chats with Alan Carl, the author of the book Forks, A Quest for Culture, Cuisine and Connection. Alan went on a three-year-long ride around the world, across five continents and 35 countries. Actually, that number is now up to 83 countries. But in this first part of the story, Neil and Alan chat about his motivations and a few of the adventures and misadventures on his epic journey. So from everyone here at Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoy this episode. So the KX250X, it's, it's a pure off-road bike, is it? Actually, it sort of is and sort of isn't. Uh, Kawasaki, when they decided to take uh, to go off-road racing, which is different than motocross racing, they did kind of the, the less expensive way, and they took their motocross bike and adapted it to off-road racing. One of the differences is you have a smaller diameter rear rim. And the reason for that is that it allows them to put on a higher profile tire to give the tire more cushion. Now, it doesn't corner as well as it would on a motocross bike, which is doing a lot of cornering and very specific kind of riding off-road. You want that extra cushion. So one of the things they did to the motocross bike is that they took the 19-inch the wheel off and replaced it with an 18-inch wheel. Now, the funny thing about that is, is that the circumference of the tire is actually the same. It's just a change in the uh-huh. size and, and the profile. And that's, that's a common thing. Honda's done that. Yamaha's done that. Uh, KTM. Everybody pretty much does that. You swap out the 19 for the 18. And, but what they didn't do is they didn't put in like a new transmission. They didn't change the chassis that much. It, they didn't give it its own geometry. So it's very much a motocross bike that has just been slightly adapted to off-road use. Uh, the other thing that they did was uh, they softened the power up a bit because you don't need that snap off-road that you do on a motocross bike. On a motocross bike, you know, you have to double and triple jumps coming out of a corner. You need an engine that hits hard so that it will catapult you over the jumps and on your way. Off-road, right. that kind of power, unpredictable terrain, you have a lot of wheel spin. So now this isn't to say this bike is not powerful because it is. They just smoothed out the throttle response a bit so that you don't, you know, so you're not fighting it in the rocks and, and, and off-road. And uh, they also, there's a few bit more to it than that uh, that I can get into with the engine that I, that I will get into. So they, they did the things that are kind of plug-in things, you know, change the power, change the rear wheel, but not the big things like put on a new frame. 
They also soften the suspension, same suspension, but with different settings. And again, uh, if you're not landing from triples, if you're not skipping the whoops like you are in motocross and supercross, you want the softer suspension that gives you the better traction off-road, again, in the unpredictable terrain, and just doesn't beat you up as much because in off-road racing, you're racing for a lot more, longer time than you are in motocross. So you need a bike that is, is less punishing and, and it doesn't have the same kind of demands on the suspension that, that a motocross bike does. So uh, we tested the first version of that a few years ago and uh, Chris Collins went and did it and uh, he, he liked it, but you know, it's a motocross bike. Uh, it still has a close ratio five speed transmission Whereas if you were building an off-road bike from scratch, you'd have a wide ratio six-speed transmission. So first gear is kind of high, fifth gear is kind of low. And <laughs> as you're, as you're uh, switching between gears, the difference isn't that big. You know, you're not losing a lot of revs. So it's always like, da, 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 you know, and, and downshifting, same thing. You kind of have to downshift a couple times to really make a difference. So those are the main things that they... Uh, take a uh, motocross bike and they turn it into an off-road bike. Now this year, they, they changed up the, the KX250X, they, you know, they did updates. It's not like they built a new bike uh, and it's not even like they changed their concept. They uh, basically took what they did to the previous year's KX250 motocross bike and then throw it on the, the X version. And uh, the engine has some updates. There's a new intake track, it's straighter, you know, more powerful. The intake valves are smaller to give it a little bit more bottom end snap and hit uh, at the expense maybe of a little bit top end. But most of the time when you're riding a bike like this, you're not hitting the red line. It's not like you have those kind of straights like you would have on a, a road circuit. You know, you're, you're, there's very few times when you're pinning it and you're hitting the rev uh, limiter, which is up at 12,000, 13,000 RPM. So that's, that's a lot of revs in the dirt, but sometimes you get there, but not that often. So they've done that. Uh, they also lengthened the header pipe, which again, more torque, smooths out the uh, power delivery. And uh, the Magneto has a rotor, got a bit of uh, weight added to it. Again, slows the power down a bit. And all these things, when I say slows it down, oh, it's, oh it gives it less. This bike is still a potent motorcycle. If you get on it and you rev, you know, it's, it's a 250, but if you, when you hit the revs and you get it on the cam, it is hauling. And, uh, <laughs> and they, they did some things with the timing. They uh, adjusted the clutch push rod to lighten the clutch pull. Uh, in this case, their clutch is uh, an unusual one. It's kind of a European style. It, it has the, instead of the bunch of little springs as you normally have in a clutch, it has a diaphragm, like a, like kind of a, bowl thing and that acts as a spring instead of a bunch of springs and i actually like the way those feel and i think they're that's a good way to go it's certainly easier to deal with uh, from a maintenance standpoint and it also unlike the other japanese bikes it has a hydraulic clutch so it's self-adjusting you have this good feel in the clutch basket it's got a really great clutch i love the clutch on the kx250x and uh, they also they changed the first gear and they made it even higher. <laughs> so as an off-road guy, the way I we were riding it, and we'll get into that a little bit more, I wish they hadn't changed it to be a higher gear, but, you know, higher ratio. But it's kind of okay because they've increased the torque to kind of make up for that. So it's not as big a deal, but it's not 
that was a change that was really a motocross oriented change, not a off-road oriented change. But this bike still is is going to be kind of the you know the poor cousin of the supercross motocross version because that's where you know that's where the sales and that's where the money is. And this is kind of like, well, we can get a little bit more, squeeze a little bit more out of this chassis. So let's make these changes. And if somebody wants it, then they can they can go with it. So all that aside, you know, we, we didn't race it. Although it's intended to be a race bike, it's kind of an East Coast race bike where you have tight woods and and their cross-country races are much different than the cross-country races in, in the West Coast where we have the desert. You know, we don't have any woods racing in Southern California because the government says no. <laughs> and, <laughs> right. So we're, we're, we're hauling butt across the desert, but we still have technical areas where it's the Rocky Mountains and the desert. But it's it's a different kind of a much different kind of riding than, than on the East Coast, and and we are the ones that would really appreciate the wide ratio six speed and a lower first gear for picking through those nasty rock beds and a higher six gear. So because this bike didn't have a six, but a six gear and one that's really high, so that you could go take it off across the desert and get a good top speed. So uh, the bike is a bit of a compromise. Uh, you know, it's not a, a pure off-road racer, but it's not a motocross bike anymore either. It's not like somebody takes a motocross bike and just goes racing. This this has the adjustments, you know, to the chassis and the suspension. So we, you know, we took it trail riding, which is, you know, for us in our minds, uh, this is a, a high-performance trail bike. That's kind of, you know, it's kind of the equivalent of like an Aprilia Tuono. You know, okay, it's, it's like, yeah, it's. You could use it on a track. You could easily take a probably a Toronto to a track, but it's really like in the in the canyons. It's still something that's that's pretty potent and pretty great. And so, if you want to ride trails out in the desert, which we did, and some in the mountains where we do have single track through the woods and stuff, we just don't have races there. So we can you know ride there and have have some fun. So we were you know if you kind of have this choice, there's kind of a big gap. On one end, you have the play bikes that have the really soft suspension, the KLX 230, like you, you've ridden, and they're 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 fun bikes, but they're very limited in their suspension. They're very limited in their power. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you have the bikes that are motocross bikes and race bikes with very high performance suspension, high uh, performance motor, just revs out super high, really awesome bike, and not there's really in this world, there's not a lot in between. So you, you kind of have to say, well, I'm either going to just put around or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to ride a little bit harder. And, uh, you know, we actually, I, I kind of like, you know, when I'm on like a, a small, like KLX 230, I kind of appreciate it small size and I can just kind of have fun in the dirt. You can ride it really hard, but I also love a bike like this where I can really go faster. You know, it's like, even though I'm not, extracting the maximum from it i'm still getting a lot more out of it than i can of any play bike and that is fun and having that level of suspension is really fun it's not just the longer travel it's the action the kyb suspension on this bike is fantastic uh, a lot of the different manufacturers use it they're all set up differently but but it's a, a great set of you know a great suspension setup that we absolutely love on the different bikes that it's used and you know there's almost 12 and a half inches of travel so you've got a lot of travel to work with on this bike and it's got 
it also has off-road tires that are mo motocross straight strictly motocross tires again based on the kind of uh traction you look the dunlop geomax at81s really like those nice good tires renthal handlebars so you've got all this good stuff going so we go riding <laughs> and <laughs> it, you know it has electric start oh and also the bike this is this is one of i gave kawasaki bad time when i was picking it up and they're like gritting their teeth going oh okay the ignition is programmable because you know it's fuel injected and so when you do change it it makes a difference but it uses a dongle system where you plug this little dongle into a you know a socket at the steering head and so you can have soft medium hard or even programmable power modes but you can't switch between them on, not not just on the fly but you have to physically unplug this and now plug this other one in which is ridiculous because oh i just i was just checking my watch here and it's 2023 and that's not how you do it <laughs> uh yamaha their yz 250fx which is the equivalent bike it not only has you know you have a choice of power modes but the power modes are also programmable via your phone and Wi-Fi. So you can you can set up these whatever kind of power band you want, very specifically set up on your phone, push a button, load two of them, and then you get to choose between them as you ride. And by the way, that Yamaha app is free. Oh nice. On the Kawasaki, you have this these three different plugins and you know it's kind of like high performance, medium, and then soft. But you, again, you have to switch them in and out manually, not, not on the fly, not picking between what you want. And if you want to, they are programmable, but you have to buy a $700 plug-in program, programmer. So Kawasaki is way behind in this thing and they know it, you know, you, you can tell that the, the stateside people are, would like the people in Japan to say, come on guys, let's get. Let's get the Wi-Fi app going so that people can tune it how they want and make it possible for them to switch. Now, the Yamaha wants us to switch between two. We'd like to switch between three, four, five, however many we want, you know. So, but we'll, but still, being able to switch on the fly is a huge improvement over the dongles. So, we have all the different dongles, but we just stuck with the soft dongle because it's just easier to ride and we're having fun. We weren't racing. We didn't need the maximum performance uh, with the soft power band it's still again soft is a very re relative term anybody that's ridden any of the play bikes like the crf 450 or excuse me crf 250 f or the yamaha ttr 250 or the uh, kawasaki's own klx 230 or klx 300 ours this is a completely different world from that you know the bike just revs much harder much faster and much higher and just puts out a ton more power. So even in the low power soft mode, it's still a really aggressive, fast motorcycle. And you know, if you're going trail riding and you like to do that, just like, again, people like to go in the canyons, they like to ride fast. They don't, you know, they, they're not always gonna be happy riding a Ninja 400 or a Honda CB300F. Sometimes they're gonna want a lot more power and just to do the fun, just because it's more fun. And in this case, this bike has the power, it has the chassis. It doesn't necessarily have the right transmission, but it, it, it has everything else around it to make it a great trail bike. So when you're riding on the trails, it's, it's just awesome. <laughs> uh, one of the things that is kind of good about it, they didn't, let's say, soften up the, the chassis in a way that made it so the bike was more stable at high speed. Now that's a problem in the desert a bit, 
but it means that when we're on the single track that we ride, the bike steers really good. Uh, you don't have to, you know, you know, scoot up all the way on, the, you know, to the uh, filler cap to turn the bike. It's it's willing to turn. I think part of that is being in the soft mode. We've we've found that on a, a lot of these uh, motocrosser turned off road bikes, that if you're in the most aggressive mode, the bike does not want to turn because the front end is always light. But if you use the softer power, the front end stays a little bit more planted and steers a little bit better, and you go, well, this is fun and Again, we were we were testing this bike as a as the ultimate play fun bike, not as the ultimate track racing uh, not track, but off road racing weapon. Uh, again, because where we live, that's not it's just not practical. And plenty of people buy these bikes and never race them, just like plenty of people will buy uh, a ZX10R and never go on a racetrack with it, even though it's. A, it's ostensibly designed to be a super bike. So uh, riding the bike is just super simple. You, you get on the, you know, you hit the, thro uh, the start button, bike starts up. Although oddly enough for a fuel injected bike, it kind of likes you to crack the throttle when you start it instead of just pushing the buttons. I'm not sure why that is, but when you're, when it's cold, it likes a little tiny bit of throttle to get going. You know, you let, let it warm up, but then you, you ride it and you really have, like two ways you can ride the bike. Uh, Kelly rode it a lot and she's five, six, 115 pounds. I'm five, nine, 160 pounds. So, you know, we are fairly different sizes on the bike, and, but she, both of us loved it, but she, you know, you, on paper, she's too small for it and she's not big enough to really like it, but she loved the bike. And part of it was just, she rode the bike in a totally different way than I ride it. Kelly was short shifting it and letting the bike run in the lower RPM range. And that the bike's fairly docile there. But so you, what you can get is you can get that kind of docile feel. And again, she's only pushing around her 115 pounds. So it's still more than if, it's, if I'm on it doing that, but, it's, but it has a chassis. So you get, you don't have to deal with the, you know, the, the race bread power to get the advantages of this, this chassis because it's, the chassis is so far superior to a KLX 300R or a KLX 230R. I mean, they're not even in, you know, they're not even in the same ballpark. So uh, I had the pleasure of, we tested, it was pretty much the two of us switching off and back and forth on it. And, you know, watching her ride, it was really fun to watch because she's, uh, you know, she's more of a single track person, but she's also, we got to the desert and she was able to ride that bike because it has a light feel and the 250 power isn't overwhelming. She could get on the gas and she, when we were dodging between uh, bushes out there, you know, you go between the creosote bushes, it's kind of like this long slalom for miles. She was able to steer it with the rear wheel and lift the front end over culverts when we ran into them and just ride really fast. And usually I'm, I'm a bit faster than she is, but when she's on that bike, she's fast. <laughs> and so it's, it's a really cool bike even if, if you can handle the height you know the power is only overwhelming if you let it be uh, it, it, you know she's not revving it up to 12,000 rpm very often you know most of the time again she's shifting it letting it work the lower end and the in the mid range of the power band now when i get on it i like to ride in the upper rpms which is kind of funny for me because on the street i'm the opposite i like to short shift but in the dirt, I tend to ride 
in high RPMs, mainly because I just don't want to take the chance of stalling. So, so if I'm going up a hill or whatever, I'm usually one gear lower than everybody else and then screaming the motor. And this one is a fun bike to scream because, you know, anytime you get into five figures, it's the sound is good. And this bike has a fairly loud muffler, which is kind of annoying sometimes, but you know, when you're in the mood to listen to it, it sounds really good. And uh, so as we're swallowing between things, I'm, I, when I'm riding it, I'm like on the gas, back ends flying all over, shooting rocks, everything all over the place. Uh, we talked about the desert for a minute. People, if you're not, if people aren't familiar with the desert, there's a lot of sand areas. There's big, long playas between mountains. And in the mountains, you can have anything from like round granite type rocks to the nastiest, ugliest, most painful if you fall lava rock areas. And the lava rock is always a big challenge because the rocks are not smooth, they're irregular, no two are anywhere near the same size, shape, or feel. But this bike just ate them up. You could just you just get on the gas, don't slow down, and go flying through, and the bike dances through. Not just not enough of a dance to where it feels like you're gonna get slam danced and you know thrown to the ground, just a little bit of movement to make it feel alive, like it's adjusting constantly to what's going on. And it really was a great ride in those kind of treacherous terrain, you know, going up a rocky hill climb. You just wind it up, go flying, point it where you want to go, look ahead, and it the suspension, the nice soft suspension sucks up in the front, or if you need to get up a little lip, lip or something, you just lean back a little and there's a plenty of torque it just pulls the front end up over it and the softer rear suspension that's the tire rear tire find traction and keep you driving so it's really really easy to ride fast and you know any bike that's easy to ride fast is fun to ride and between the suspension and and you know the geometry is a little nervous the faster you go but if you're riding any kind of technical train at lower speeds the the responsiveness of the chassis is just fantastic and uh you know we again we took it in, in the desert on the the tougher trails and the mountains and it just was just incredibly intuitive what you wanted it to do again i kept it revved high slinging rocks all over the place kelly shifts up a bit and just glides through and it's it's uh, you know she was telling me that she loved watching me ride and i loved and i at the same time loved watching her riding in the mountains where you have not so many rocks necessarily, but a lot of, you know, much tighter, you know, less room for error a lot of the times, you know, there'll be cliffs and things like that. You know, the bike gives you the confidence that you're gonna stay, it's gonna go where you wanna go and keep you on point. Like if I'm aiming here, it's gonna go here and it's not gonna chuck me off. And uh, again, when it does, if it does get rockier or anything, that suspension just is the way to go. Uh, in the tight stuff, the motocross uh, geometry, the bike turns, and it's it's great. And it's, uh, you know, it's just the way you, it makes riding, if you wanted to explain to somebody who didn't ride off-road, like how much fun off-road riding could be, you'd have them follow you. Because if they could follow you and watch you, maybe get one of those drones, they go, wow, that person's having a lot of, you can just tell how much fun they're having, the way they're 
moving on the bike and the way the bike itself is moving. There's nothing intimidating or scary about it, but man, you're going at a good clip and the and it's just lifting the front end up and sliding the rear wheel and cramming it into a corner. It's everything it does. You're just like, this is this is the why we ride motorcycles. And so getting back to the beginning when I said that Chris tested the original, he thought I wouldn't like it because it was so motocross based. And I didn't really have an, a, a any kind of anticipation for the bike other than I like very much like the Yamaha YZ250FX and the Honda CRF250RX, uh, which are which are the Honda and Yamaha versions of this bike, which is they take the motocross bike, make some alterations and send you on your way. And he thought that maybe this would be not quite as not quite to my taste because I'm also used to you know the European bikes that have the six-speed transmissions and 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 the rest. But anyway, uh, it was just fun to ride, and I got to get you out on this <laughs> so that you can see what it's like because it's it's quite a uh, it's it would be an eye opener for you uh, if he's listening. Arthur is not really an off-road bike, but he's uh, taken to riding dirt bikes a bit and so came back from a ride uh, at one of the areas and said wow that was really fun I was like, yeah it is fun because as I always tell everybody motorcycles are fun it doesn't really matter what you're doing on them you could be cruising through downtown LA or you could be on interstate five flying up at I'm not supposed to say how fast as you're going up you know between towns or twist going flying through the twisties on Mulholland or whatever you're doing, it's fun. I mean, every one of these motorcycles we buy and they sell are designed to be fun, you know? So it's just a matter of going, oh yeah, this is fun. Oh, it's, I wanna do this. Well, yes, but why don't you try this thing too? This is really fun. Well, really, let me try. And then you do and you go, oh, wow, I didn't even know about this. So this kind of goes back to my, I'm always trying to get people who or only into one part of motorcycle or maybe one or two to say, Hey, you know, you should try this other kind of thing. It's, it's good too, because I'm somebody who's so lucky to have the job that I have because I like to ride all the motorcycles and for, it would be a big pain in the butt for me to have an adventure bike and a motocross bike and a, a off-road bike and a trials bike and a street a sport bike and a upright bike and a cruiser and a touring bike. <laughs> it's like, okay, okay. You know, there's only so much time. And I, I get to ride them all, but uh, I'll, I'll say when I'm riding the KX250X, you know, you just have that feeling like you're, it's one of those hero bikes where it makes you feel way better of a rider than you really actually are, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Okay. All right. Sounds great. I can tell you that whenever I'm riding any of those, the three, the 250s, you know, of this type, they're awesome, you know, and you feel like you're the best rider in the world and you're riding, you're doing things way better, way faster and way easier than you ever imagined you could. And uh, they, they do that because they just aren't intimidating yet. They're still incredibly capable, you know? So they're just, you know, I, I call them hero bikes. They make you feel like you're a hero and like, you're right. Like, wow. Look how, I had no idea. I was so good. I, I can go this fast. I can make this kind of turn. I can jump this. I can go sliding through this or I can, whatever I'm doing, it's great. You know, I mean, I didn't even get in. I didn't even have to get into the brakes. The brakes are completely intuitive. I mean, so much the bikes are, all the bikes now are so well sorted out that everything happens the way you expect it to happen. 
And so unless somebody asked you later, like, well, how are the brakes? Oh yeah, I didn't even think about them. Well, whenever I squeezed them, they slowed me down exactly the amount that I expected them to. Nothing happened that was, you know, untoward or unexpected. Uh, I mean, the only thing, you know, my only complaint, and this is my complaint based on my use, which is not the intended use, which is the cross country racer in the East Coast, is that I'd like to have the six speed transmission. Uh, when you're tapped out in fifth gear, which you, you can get tapped out in fifth gear. And so, you know, when you're doing that, it has like the maximum power to go into the ground. And so the bike at 60 miles an hour is much more nervous than it would be if you were in sixth gear and it was maybe at three quarter power. Right. Okay. So, you know, so you kind of, it, the bike is, is a bit nervous at high speed. It doesn't have a steering damper, which I don't expect it to have. And none of the others do. So that's fine. It, people would add that. That's something you would add on if you, you know, if you rode in the desert, but very adept at both desert riding and tight single track. And those are completely different uh, disciplines. You know, one is like slums and fast and going and the other is like super tight, changing direction all the time in, you know, at slower speeds. Uh, but it, it can handle both. So it's a real versatile off-road bike. So, uh, you know, I don't have to tell anybody that is interested in off-road bikes, really. They understand the difference between the play bikes and the serious bikes. And again, like I say, I wish there was more of a, there were more bridge bikes. Uh, I don't know that I necessarily want them, but I'd like to try them because there really aren't any that I can say, yes, this is like half the halfway point. It's like, you either go this way, you know, you either go the, the play bike route or you go the high performance route. And uh, when I'm riding the high performance bike, it puts me, my brain in the high performance mode and I ride accordingly and, and I love it. And you come back at the end of the day from riding, you just feel so good. You're so excited. And the, you know, the 2023 Kawasaki KX250X is a ex great example of, of that 250 off-road bikes. It really does a it just it's just it's just magic and riding motorcycles is magic and that's 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 how great it is so that kind of sums it up for me yeah terrific i can hear the enthusiasm in your voice about it it really it really does sound like it like it lit up the uh lit up your day riding that thing oh yeah yeah we've ridden it quite a few times and really every time i go it's like yeah this is great <laughs> so <laughs> And even after a while, you, you expect it to be great. And that's always a, a high expectation. And you, especially if you're going somewhere new and it's like, no, it, it did exactly what I wanted to do, you know? And so, ex except for the super high speed stuff, you know, and, and the super low speed where first gear is a little low in the super tight situations that are also kind of technical, first gear is kind of high. So you okay. have to slip the clutch to stop the bike from stalling. Now it's not the kind of bike that likes to stall a lot, but you still, because for skier is so high, you definitely have to give it more revs and slip the clutch. Fortunately, the clutch is does not have a, a hard pull. It's only a 250 and that diaphragm spring system and the hydraulics are good. So they're, actually they're great. So it makes it e easy to do that, but you'd wish that there was a first gear that was lower so you didn't have to do that. And that would be, and again, that's my trail bike guy complaint that the off-road race guy on you know, rides GNCC races and East Coast is going to go, no, 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 no. This is good as it is, you know? <laughs> okay. So 
uh, depending on what class they're in, certainly the higher classes. If you're in the lower class, you might be going, yeah, I'd like to have a lower first gear. And, you know, you don't want to gear it down because then, then fifth gear isn't that high. And there's even revving it even more just to go 60. And right. then there's, there's a downside of that. But other than that, it's uh, the chassis, then the motor's performance, just spectacular, just perfect, really. Wow. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate your insight. It sounds, sounds amazing. Makes me want to ride off road. Yeah. Well, you know, we, we, we know that you've been doing that. So we might drag you and by the nape of the neck and put you on this and see what happens. <laughs> okay. You go, Oh, this is fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Sounds great. Okay. Hey, All thanks. Right. Okay. Well. All right. Talk to you later. In our second segment, editor-at-large Neil Bailey chats with Alan Carl, the author of the book Forks, A Quest for Culture, Cuisine and Connection. Alan went on a three-year-long ride around the world, across five continents and 35 countries. Actually, that number is now up to 83 countries. But in this first part of the story, Neil and Alan chat about his motivations and a few of the adventures and misadventures on his epic journey. Reputation precedes it, unmatched performance and striking style define it. We're talking about the 2023 Suzuki Hayabusa. This legendary sport bike is the quickest, most technologically advanced and aerodynamic Hayabusa ever. Its raw power and unparalleled acceleration matches your own drive, while its head-turning design embodies your spirit's flair. Led by the Suzuki Intelligent Ride System, the Hayabusa gives riders a comprehensive collection of electronic rider aids, like the bi-directional quickshifter, the drive mode selector, launch control system, and the cruise control system that simultaneously increases performance comfort and rideability. While its advanced analog and TFT LCD display panel connects you to the ride like never before, blending over 20 years of tradition with innovation. Plus, the Hayabusa comes in three new eye-catching color combinations and it offers a full suite of available Suzuki genuine accessories that you can choose from. The ultimate rider waits, so head into your local Suzuki dealer now or visit suzukicycles.com to learn more. Well, you know, I as 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 a kid, I mean there was a friend of mine Pete DeLeo down the street had a mini bike and wow, that was the coolest thing and I was about 11 years old and you know i'd love to sneak over there and uh my dad would always say look don't you ever get on that thing <laughs> well yeah i got on that so my first motorcycle came probably about four or five years later but you see my dad was in the auto body business and had a wreck you know tow truck a wrecker we used to call it and he'd seen plenty of um bodies strewn out on the uh on the highway and the pavement and uh there was no way anybody living in his house would have a motorcycle even though he had a motorcycle so my very first motorcycle was something that i kind of contributed to in a backdoor way and the motorcycle resided at a friend's house it was a hadaka dirt squirt 
if you remember that. I do. Uh, a dirt squirt. So strictly an off-road thing where he was a, a older friend and would put it on a trailer and we trailered it over to, uh, I lived in uh, Connecticut at the time and we crossed the border into the state of New York and there were several motocross parks there. But that was really the first bike. Yeah. So what what age were you at that point? About 14, 13? About 14 or 15, exactly. Yep. So would you say it was sort of love at first ride? Were you hooked? Was this like, did this sort of go straight in the main veins where you're like, this is my life? Or was it a slower? It was probably a little bit slower. You know, again, uh, living with my dad, there was uh, always a motorcycle in the garage, which he rarely rode. But, uh, uh, but there was no way I was going to have my own. And it wasn't until after I graduated college that I bought my first motorcycle and not out of really love in the veins. Of course, I always loved it. You know, one of the things when we go to the track back when I was a teenager was, you know, everybody had to have their chance. There was like four of us guys we'd all go. So we were sharing one motorcycle. So what's the worst thing that always happens? The guy's raised his hands. Time for you to come in, Alan. You know, after you're out there jumping and spraying dirt around. But, but the real reason I got uh, into motorcycling or at least my real official personal motorcycle was I moved from upstate New York or went to school in Syracuse. We like to affectionately call that Syracuse because if you would look there right now, it's not far from Buffalo, a uh, very cold place on the planet. And um, when I got to California, I had no car and I didn't have enough money to buy a car. So I bought a motorcycle. So my very first motorcycle was actually a Suzuki. It was a 450. It was a GS, actually. They called it that back then. They didn't. They it wasn't like a GS as we think of today. I think it was. A oh, GS. was it? Was it like a little custom bike with twin cylinder, double O head cam, TSX or something? Yeah. Yes. Well, it was a GSE 450. So it was a little bike, and little did I know at that time that. You know, again, here I am, a 21-year-old, 22-year-old coming into L.A., thinking I'm going to be able to just use this as my vehicle to get around L.A. Or even more importantly, when I got my very um, uh, first full-time job, I I'd worked in um, movies and in recording studios, and I actually worked as a soundboard and light guy for some rock and roll bands that toured around the L.A. So you, clubs. You'd, so you'd come out of college. Yep. Had you graduated with a degree in anything? Yeah, yeah, with a degree in communication. Two questions. So you graduated with a degree in communications and moved to sort of L.A. to start your career. Correct. Exactly. What was the bike your dad had in the garage back in the early days? Well, he had always small little Hondas. Um, the, 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 the first bike I ever rode on, there's a photograph. I'll, I'll send that to you because it's, it's pretty cool. It's also the last page in my book. And it's a Honda 125 of some sort, some CB or something. But uh, ultimately, he got rid of that bike, which I believe was an early 1960s model. And he got a, uh, or mid-60s, and he got a um, a Honda, beautiful um, CB 175 twin street bike. And that bike sat in the garage uh, for the longest time and, and I will tell you the story is I have that bike now uh, because on my 40th birthday, which was just a couple months ago, of course, um, 
<laughs> no. Back in the 70s. I used to always 70s. I used to always tell my dad, you'll appreciate this, is that I you know, he really rarely rode the bike. You know, he'd take yeah. me out on a couple of rides, put people on the back, ride them around the there, but he just um it sat in the garage. And I told him all during college, don't you ever sell that motorcycle. And on my 40th birthday, I'd already started my own business, had a business here in um, in California, Southern California. And a guy shows up on my birthday into the office, talks to the receptionist, says, I have a package for Alan Carl. A few minutes later, he's wheeling in that CB175, 1972. And you CB still have it. And I still have it. I'm following what I told my dad, my late father, um, that uh, I won't even sell that because uh, it's, and it's beautiful. It's got the chrome fenders. It's this nice kind of candy apple red finish and nice chrome and those nice big, the big tack and the big speedometer. And really just really cool looking, you know, we call it a retro or vintage bike. Now it is, it's 1972. It's, you know, it's 50 years old. Retro without being retro. So yeah. Thanks for filling me in on that because I was like, before we move on, because so you so you get to LA, you graduated college, you're getting your way into the movie industry, and you're riding around LA on a GSA 450 Suzuki. Yep. And how are your skills at this point? Are you a natural rider? Are you having fun? Are you crashing the bike? What are you? Yeah, never crashing. No, I'm a natural rider. Um, definitely making my way. You know, I got a job. You'll the the motorcycle fans will appreciate this my really I, I mentioned this to you i was living in la with my girlfriend at the time and i got a job in newport beach it was the coolest thing this company had rented out a big house right on the strand so my office was literally looking out at the um people walking up and down going to the beach the surfers and the bikini clad babes cruising up and down and i'm in there working and the company was called great american media and they were the promoter of consumer motorcycle shows which now which that company got acquired years later after i left them and it, and for example the big show in la uh long beach rather all the the consumer motorcycle shows were uh you know that was the genesis from from there and anyway i would have to ride from la to newport beach 55 miles on a freeway, the 405 freeway, for all of you who've been to LA and know exactly what that is, on a 450 that's revving out at, you know, I don't know, six grand or something, just to, you know, <laughs> and and I quickly realized this is not going to work. I'm not going to ride every day 50 <laughs> miles one way, 50 miles the other way. So I started, I borrowed my uh, girlfriend's car, but Meanwhile, eventually found a place in Newport Beach and uh, was able to make that commute. <laughs> Instead of being 55 miles, it ended up being about five miles when on that motorcycle. The Great American Motorcycle Show. So I had it by then. Now I was around motorcycles. I was around people, you know. You weren't just commuting on it. You were sort of socializing on it, taking your girlfriend, meeting other people on bikes. Yeah, not you know, not so much meeting other people uh, on bikes, but mostly you know, there are there are a few neighbors of mine. One guy uh, we used to love to go out to. Um, there's this road uh, that people know around here, the Ortega Highway. It's kind of oh, one yeah. of those, yeah, those 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 roads that people love to go around and drag their knees. Of course, my bike wasn't a, you know, wasn't a, a, a sport bike in that sense. It, it, it is, 
there and uh, but we would we would ride together and go out to palm springs and that was a lot more you know to my style now you know i eventually uh upgraded that bike uh to a, a yamaha seika a turbo seika a interesting there, there wasn't a lot of those around 654 cylinder turbo it's yeah a, that's, that's an interesting path to go to any route was it just luck or did it was it design i i well i knew the guys at uh, yamaha because they were exhibiting at the shows and when i i would see i wouldn't have to go to five different dealers because i remember i was working for this consumer show we had shows in like nine or ten cities you know from chicago to dallas to new york and all around san francisco and i would be on the show floor for three days looking at motorcycles and i always liked this kind of futuristic design back then you know there was a period of time in the mid 80s when the motorcycle industry in the u.s was a bit uh the 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 japanese manufacturers were overproducing bikes so they had an excess a surplus of uh bikes from previous years the non-currents we would call them and Yamaha had made this bike for a couple years and they didn't sell very well, right? As, as you know. And so they connected me with a dealer out of Long Beach and I was able to buy this bike for, you know, a few hundred dollars above cost, as I recall. And even though I think I bought it in 1985, let's say it was around there somewhere in the mid 80s. The bike was a 1982 or, or an 83. I forget the exact year. So it was a two or three year old bike, but I got it. It was brand new, but it's just that it was, you know, stick, stuck in a warehouse somewhere. So they delivered it to the, through this dealer and then bam. And it's a beautiful, it's a, you know, we, we would call that, uh, you know, a sport touring bike nowadays, right? That was kind of the category. And for me, that was perfect because then I started really getting involved with some of these other people, aftermarket manufacturers, small little companies. I'd get my saddlebags. I would go and do runs up through California, go camping. And uh, that really ignited my fascination in, in bike by the time I got that that uh, Yamaha Turbo Seca. So what what age are you now? I mean, were you, you didn't tour on this thing? Were you taking girlfriends out for rides? Were you just commuting? Or were you cafe hopping, bar hopping? What was your kind of state of mind i'm i'm sort of i'm digging through the pieces to how you get to become this uh, well-known world traveler author here you're on your 650 what type of riding are you doing i am really doing sport touring dude i'm not really yes i i i'll never forget that uh i went out with a group of guys we did they used to do this thing palms to pines it was a run out of santa barbara which is the palms palm trees to pines up into the uh the sequoia forest you know up in the uh uh national parks up there and that was such a fun ride and i would ride with these guys and i remember going and my skill set was pretty good but I had gone around, I was, I was really digging into these corners. And, and, and this is a funny story. It's like, I, I guess around one corner, I got a little target fixation, you know, how that happens. And all of a sudden you're not really, you're not watching your own line. You're not, you're, you're not using your head the way you're supposed to. And I go around a corner and I realize, oh my God, I, I'm going, I'm in an inside uh, decreasing radius and it's all this high brush next to me. And I am literally going against the brush and it's scratching the side of the bike. And I'm like, easy on the throttle, throw down. I mean, it made my heart skip a beat. You know, this was like, and I realized then I needed to, you know, 
get a, a little bit more uh, acclimated to fast riding in the twisties. Yeah, 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 yeah. I would be cruising up and down, visiting friends all over California. So this bike was not a commuter bike. I wasn't going out to the bars or taking girls out on it. No, I was going on journeys. They, the journeys were not, not just, you know, they were, they were California. I'd go up to the Sequoias Yosemite. I'd go up to Santa Barbara. I'd go up to San Francisco. I'd take it up there. I'd go out to the, um, to the Grand Canyon. You know, these kinds of, these were, these were journeys for sure. What were you reading at the time? Were you sort of staying up late to read Jupiter's Travels or Helga Pedersen or are you a Cycle World guy with Peter Egan, Kevin Cameron? And were you, were you, where were your influences that, that put all these seeds and kernels of this around the world journey? Was it people you're meeting or we didn't, or have we not got there yet? Well, no, not definitely not. Because at this point, I'm again, yes. I mean, I was in my early twenties and yeah. I knew I, I worked for this uh, great American media company for a very short time, a couple years. And I, I, I was always entrepreneurial in, in my, um, in my life. I was always as a kid, even starting little businesses, doing things. So what I was reading at the time had nothing to do with motorcycle. It had to do with how to run a business, how to market, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And That's so American of you. <laughs> One of yeah, so you know it's very it's very interesting. Um, I had um, I worked with a, a a few people like Hein Gerica. You may have remember their leather company, and um, I still have my Hein Gerica jacket. Yeah, and um, there was a guy named uh, Larry Huffman who was uh, very active in the motorcycle community. He was an announcer. He would do uh, radio spots. In fact, he had to be to be. I met him because he was the MC of our shows. And he also needed a little help. I had a natural ability for marketing and branding and sales. So my first couple of clients were in the motorcycle industry, but then I expanded and got into the high tech industry. And there was a period, Neil, that um, my motorcycling, I, I, I like to say that my motorcycle was gathering more dust than miles because I was really pursuing, I wanted to build this world-class company I was really into technology, uh, particularly in the marketing and the branding, you know, eventually to the internet. And, and that's where I, I focused and the motorcycle was just a weekend warrior thing for me. You know, I wasn't going to rallies. I wasn't hanging out motorcycle. I wasn't at the rock store or Alice's up there in San Francisco. No, I was just, uh, you know, trying to run a company and again, nose to the grindstone. We were doing great. And, um, there was at some point, and I write about this in my book, Forks, and at um, in my uh, late 30s, um, I decided it's time to go big or go broke, right? I just, like, would have been running. I'd, this company had been going for 10 years. Did I, you I still have the Seika? I still had the Seika, yeah. Yep. It had been with you through that whole journey. Through that whole journey, yep. And I decided that uh we anyway uh, without getting too long-winded into this thing um i i put together a a, a consolidation plan a roll-up for a bunch of companies that were similar to mine you know companies with 20 to 30 employees 
doing anywhere from, you know, a million to three million in sales. And we got about eight of them and we merged everybody together to create one bigger company. So now you, you, I use, I was owning a hundred percent of my pie, but now what I was doing is I owned a smaller piece of a larger pie where we could aggregate our client lists, our staff, our marketing dollars, our operations, all of that stuff. But we were still disparate, meaning we were in different locations. And that I went on a long run for about a year to almost two years building this company to the point where at some point the the dot com era of this, which would be right around 2000, uh, we went in from dot, you know, boom to dot bust or the, the dot bomb, as we like to call it. And it was at that time we somehow managed to get investors to come into this company, put a bunch of money in it. And it was at that point I realized I was in a hotel room uh, having a big corporate meeting in Las Vegas at the Hard Rock Hotel on September uh, 9th, 10th, and 11th, and 12th of 2001. So in the middle of that meeting, the planes hit the towers. Everything is run amok in our country. And I had had a meeting the day before with the, uh, you know, the investors, the money people, the private equity firm that put their uh, uh, money into our business. And I realized I wouldn't like to go on a motorcycle with these guys. I didn't, certainly wouldn't like to invite them over dinner or have a glass of wine with them. So it was shortly after that, Neil, that I actually quit. Now, I, I, I started this company. I founded this company. I named this company. I branded this company. I quit. I wrote a resignation letter. And after that, I started another company and was just in my, I went through a divorce. And I just wasn't fulfilled. I wasn't challenged. I was really sitting there like, what do I do now? You know, out of a job, lonely, no money. Yeah, I'm starting a new job, but it's my own company. And it's like, I'm doing the same thing over again. I'm on that treadmill. And uh, so I started reading. The very first book I read was Neil Parrott, the drummer from Rush, wrote a book called Ghost Rider. He was a big GS. He was a big biker guy, you know, motorcycle GS. And he um, had a series of events, sadly, horrific events. In a period of a year, he lost his daughter, 17 years old, in a car accident, and his wife to cancer. And what did he do to kind Rode of heal? motorcycle and rode. Rode on, right. I read that, and I'm like, holy. I never even thought. He's like, he went all the way down to Panama. I'm like, I didn't even, I never even thought of like, who could ride a motorcycle to Panama? So then I found the great Jupiter's Travels and Ted Simon. And there was a guy, um, another guy wrote a book called Odyssey to Ushuaia. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Who is that? Yeah, I forget his name. Um, in fact, I talked to him on the phone as I, so I started planning this trip. I realized. Mem memorable guy, right? <laughs> yeah. The book was really good. He wrote it, he wrote it well. Um but no, you know, it's like there are so many of these uh, books. But at the time, Neil, you may remember how many people had really ever gone around the world on a motorcycle. It was a very small group. It's it's gotten to be a little bit, I hate to use the firm, trendy now. Uh, but, uh, I mean, Ted Simon was not obviously the first and he wasn't the last. <laughs> but he ignited a movement of these uh adventure motorcycles which i was they, one of they, the early ones they tended to be like in you know my growing up days 
you know, you would sort of see a random article in a motorcycle magazine of some guy you didn't really know, but he was on a modified sort of XR600. There'd be some pictures from Africa or Russia or something, and somebody on a TT600, and I think, you know, like Elvis Beard riding a BMW. There were, there were people doing it, but it really was the Ted, it was Ted Simon's book. And like you said, it's, it's like the only way now you can do something different is literally the unicycle around the world backwards and playing a violin. Just an ugly story. Great. No, but I read then Helga Pedersen certainly had, had you know, he had a niche. And then there were these, um, there was a couple from uh, New York, um, Rate, the last name. And they were on two bikes, you know, man and uh, uh, husband and wife were on two bikes, GS. Wasn't, wasn't, oh, there wasn't a Jim Rogers investment. Uh, there, you know, we, we read Jim Rogers, Aaron and Chris Rate were, were their okay. names, if I think I've got that right. And they had a, the, you know, were the first ones really to document that through a blog. They had a, a website called Ultimate Journey. Um, they are now real estate agents somewhere in Colorado, but uh, but I had started following them around, and then there was a guy named Glenn Hegstead. You remember him? He was uh, the striking Viking, was his little uh, moniker, um, hmm. and he had been in a in a book he wrote, and I can't remember the name of it, but uh, famously was kidnapped by Colombian guerrillas and uh, held hostage for x amount of time and eventually was rescued out they did a uh national geographic uh, special on him but that had happened a, a few years before i went on the road and then he lost his motorcycle and uh, glenn eventually got back on the bike so these are about the only people at the time you know and then there was uh a, a, you know obviously a few others you know i'm not saying the only people but they were out there documenting it and putting it out there and giving us, you know, armchair travelers, something to, to chew on, giving us that red meat. And that's what really, you know, got me going. I spent two years planning my journey. And of course, nothing goes as planned, right? How old were you when you set the plan in motion? Probably uh, 39 or 40. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, you're coming out of that business, marriage has ended, you're kind of reading these books. You've had this revelation during Neil Peart's bike, and you said you didn't get on your bike and ride around the world the following day. So what was the process when you kind of, where was your mental line you crossed to know you were going and you put that whole machine into action, so to speak? I went out and bought a GS650, 2001, just a regular GS, because that's what I had seen Chris and Aaron riding. And, uh, a few others that I ran into and I got a big map and I bought a big whiteboard and in the front living room of my house, I put the big whiteboard up. I brought in a bookshelf and I put the map up. The GS is in the garage. I'm looking at the map and I'm reading these books. And initially I thought, well, I'm just going to go pole to pole. I'll go to a Prudhoe Bay, you know, up to Alaska as far north as you can go on, on a road and go as far south as you can to Ushuaia. And that would be the trip. And then as I started looking at this map, uh, I, I, I went to a few Horizons Unlimited. Uh, they used to have a, a little traveler's meeting in Mexico. So I took that GS down to uh, the Copper Canyon, you know, and met other riders 
most of them just doing these short little trips into Mexico or they're doing it here. And uh, actually at one of those meetings, I met Chris and Aaron, they'd already completed, they'd done their, uh, they did four years around the world together. The Horizon Dinner, that was Grant and Susan. Grant and Susan, yeah. I met them in a bus shelter in Finland. Yeah, that uh, they were they had stopped riding and decided to go around the world in a bus. Okay, I'm asking. No, they were on their bike. It was pissing down in rain. I pulled in to get my waterproof, and they stopped to see if everything was okay. They were on some great else. <laughs> now, what were you doing in Finland, by the way? That's totally top secret. I mean, you know. Okay. Okay. I, mean, I no, could tell you that I'd hate to have to kill you. You know. No, I was on a. I was on a. I spent about five months. Essentially, I rode to the four corners of Europe. I went as far north, south, east, and west as you could inside Europe on a KLR 650. So I'd been uh -huh. through Sweden, through Norway, up to the Nord Cap, a couple of Nord. And instead of coming back down through Norway, I came back down through Finland. Did you go so, through the North Pole and that Santa village there? I did. Yeah, I've still got my I still got my selfie. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but. Uh... What, what, what's what's her name? Um, Senna, right? The president today. I'm talking about Finland today. Isn't she the coolest? She was out there in the, the bar dancing. Oh, my I God. Would, I would have her baby. Oh, yeah. she I mean, is. So, I mean, she's just, did you hear her? Like, just giving it. Yeah. I mean, we, it. We, need, we need more leaders in this world that have that. Well, I mean, have you seen, have you seen these leaders from Finland and Lithuania? Well, that's what I'm talking about. Senna, not the Lithuanians, uh, but, but Senna, I think is her name, right? I mean, or maybe I'm wrong. I'm um, whatever her name is. Yeah. They're incredible. She, she's women. like 40 or something. Yeah. Looks like she's 25. I mean, just yeah. Solid. And, and, and smart, but also, yeah. yeah. You know, and this is why I love traveling too, because you get a sense. Yeah. And one of the great things of traveling um, and having now been on that GS through 82 or 83 countries, I think now Wow! is, is yeah. on the same bike. And is that you've been to Finland. I've been to Finland. We all immediately connect over Finland. Now, you know, maybe you were in, you were in Helsinki, a bus stop and you ran into Grant John, Grant and Susan Johnson of Horizons Unlimited. I mean, here's our little, little community, but we, 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 we have these, these connections and, and, a lot of times people like might be afraid to do something. They may be afraid to travel, but you know, even our motorcycle friends, they'll, some of them like the comfort zone of just being within our four border, our borders here in the United States. Mm -hmm. Maybe they'll cross into Canada, but maybe they won't even breach into Tijuana or into Baja or, or, or into the mainland. But you know, the, the, the key thing I think this travel does is it helps us open up, open up to new ideas, open us up to, different foods, which is why I put the foods in my book. Give me the elevator story on the book itself. So so the book is called Forks, A Quest for Culture, Cuisine, and Connection. And the the genesis of that is I thought I'd just write a book like so many people have. We love Ted Simon's Jupiter's Travels and all that. But when I got back from this trip after three years going through five continents and 35 countries, I thought, I don't want to just write about me. I want to write about you, meaning the people that I met and not just the places. You know, I always say that, you know, you may go to a beautiful museum or see this amazing sculpture or this amazing cathedral. But five years later, the fact that for you, the, the possibility of you remembering the name of that cathedral, that painting you saw in the uh, 
in the museum is going to be very minimal compared to that time you sat with a little old lady and shared a cup of tea. You're going to remember that old lady. And when when you when I wrote, decided to write my book, I wanted to honor not me. It's not like oh, I did this great accomplishment, which granted I did. I mean, it's very cool. I broke my leg in Bolivia. I did all these things. But what did I do? Is I honored those people, the places, and the food. So the book is divided into the five continents with each country represented by a story of connecting with people in that country, photographs of people in the places in that country, and a signature recipe, usually like a, a national dish. Uh, you know, for example, if you've ever been to Costa Rica, I know a lot of, of people that love, love that, uh, you know, Costa Rica is their gallo pinto is their, you know, you can't go anywhere and not have gallo pinto. So I just thought this is a way I can share this experience and not be so selfish. It's not all about me, 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 but mm -hmm. rather share it with you, with anybody through photos, stories, and flavors. So you're, you're outlining your trip, your first leg of your trip, South, Central, South America. Yeah. The first leg of the trip went all, went actually through us, through Canada, all the way up to Prudhoe Bay. And then I made a U-turn up there. I, I couldn't go over the cap. Apparently there was, they hadn't built the bridge yet. Uh, but anyway, so, so I did a big U-turn and headed down through Baja. And then I took a ferry from La Paz over to Los Mochis uh, and then continued South through Mexico, choosing not to go the, the playas, but the colonial route through places like Durango, San Luis Potosi, Zacatecas, Guanajuato, I mean, Oaxaca, just these incredible colonial cities with rich history and sometimes maybe not so good, but uh, this was this was fun. And then, you know, all the way down into Guatemala, um, into, I was going to planning on going into Salvador, but it was during um, a really tough rain time like we're having now. And, uh, the borders were closed for Salvador. So I, I took a left and went to Honduras, Honduras into Nicaragua, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, Panama. What did you cross into Nicaragua? I crossed in from the Honduras border. I the, went through there in 85. Oh, yeah. I, I went in there years later, years later, many years, that probably was, more than 20 years later. Yeah. yeah, that was where I, that was when I had my international money exchange business. I was you were part of the, you were the IMF. Started, just trading money on the black market because the war was on when I went through there. Okay. It's a great way to make money. Really? Yes, fantastic. You buy the money on the black market, you sell it on the regular market. It's a pretty cool deal. You can have well, an easy maybe, day. Have you heard about what's happening down in Argentina right now? Maybe we should go. Argentina is really, it's its a disaster, their economy. I love it. It's my, one of my favorite countries. I always, people ask me, what's your favorite? Well, I got, you know, I can't have one, but that's one. And they're getting slaughtered. But right now, I just had some friends were down there who's, you know, everybody warned them, don't use your credit card. Because yeah. what you're doing, your credit card's going to use the bad exchange rate, but buy your money on the street. Yeah. So so if this podcasting business doesn't work out for us. Argentina. I mean, I've got the skills. I've got, I've got the resume. You do. You do. Yeah. You're, you're, a, you're a, can we call you a currency trader? I mean, you know. Or were you dealing yeah. mostly in coins? Money. Hard currency. Pesos. You, know, you, put, you, you put a couple of fires out, it doesn't make you a fireman. I mean, a little bit of black money, black market money laundering. <laughs> There's a war. You got to do what you do. But so you, so you rolled through Nicaragua, and obviously went into down into Costa Rica, Panama. 
did you um did you ship around the darian or did you ride through no no um the darian is just it's ridiculous um, unless you held the pedestal of course who pulled his yeah. bike with his teeth while he was writing journals and photographing and teaching yoga <laughs> exactly no i decided to go um high you know, I don't like to take the low road and I certainly don't want to be down in the gutter where all the water is. So I got on an airplane. Oh, wow. With my motorcycle. You know, you pull it up there at the Panama. It's big. Speaking of currency trading, you just you pull up to the curb and you check your motorcycle and they give you a little baggage tag. No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> I had it was quite a it was quite an ordeal actually. I can see you trying to get your GS into the overhead lofting. <laughs> <laughs> but uh seriously, uh it it uh it's it's interesting. So it didn't need to be created or anything, do that what they call uh Roro. Isn't that doesn't you like to say Roro? Roll on, roll off. Roll your bike on, roll So did it you off. find the Cartagena? I know I fled to uh, Bogota. Bogota. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's funny because the the place where they unloaded, uncreated, if you will, or rolled off my bike, uh, you know, came in on a loading dock in the back of the thing. But there, I was not allowed due to security to go behind the, um, you know, to the airport, like to, to get my motorcycle out of this this building, which was on the second floor. Okay, you know, it wouldn't call it the second floor. It's like I raised up high floor and there's a basement. So it was built on this um, side of this hill. And I said, how am I supposed to get out? And the guy points out and there's two glass doors, like those storefront doors. And and a staircase that goes down like a, a flight and a half. Is that how you got all those cuts on your face and the broken collarbone? Or was that another? Another time, yeah. No, I rode the thing out. This is great. There's a photograph. I think it's in the book too. And I'm like, I just rode down those stairs. Like, what else are you going to do? I guess I got to ride down the stairs. Had I ridden down stairs like that before? I, I don't think so. But why not? So you carried on south. Um, by the time you got to Bolivia, how long had you been on the road? And how are you funding this at this point? I know this is a big question for a lot of people. It's like, yeah, you know, well, one, the world. one of the things that I did is I definitely saved for a long time for this. And I um, used to be, and very still am, really into wine, right? And I used to buy way too much wine, more wine than I would ever consume in my era. And I was I was buying wines that that did appreciate in value. I sold a good part of that collection um, that helped pay for this. As so well. you would self finance some savings and assets, and yeah, I had some. I had sponsors, but not for money. I tried. Believe me, I. If you could see my original sponsorship pitch, I pitched people like American Express, FedEx, um, airlines. I was, I mean, uh, clothing companies, and I was looking for for some funding. But uh, I got I got in kind sponsors, meaning gear. You know, uh, Aerostitch gave me some things. BMW uh, through the uh, the writing of the apparel division gave me a few things, and. Um, you know, held gloves. I mean, there was a handful of lists. They're in the book, I think. Um, so, you, so you put it together. But so when you hit Bolivia, how long had you been traveling? I'd been on the road probably seven months. So that's a long time on the road. And of course, Bolivia was the big turning point for you in this journey. So maybe you might want to talk to us about that. Because this is, I guess, one of the key moments of your trip, really. Yeah, like if we're telling stories, we always like to say this is a tentpole story. You know, it's it's a, it's a real big important part because um, 
one of the where did you come up the tent pole thing uh, uh tent pole oh it's a it's a you know when we're talking in like theater or uh fiction writing or even in speech writing you know there are tent poles things that hold up your story so as you oh, go wrong I thought you were talking about the time you had the sleepover here at my house. So, yeah, no, a, I know I, you made me go sit sleep in the tent, but uh, I, I was starting to feel a bit uncomfortable. So, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I know, and I'm still, I'm still bitter about that. By the way, <laughs> so you're in Bolivia. You're, you're getting ready to hold your tent up with your pole, and yeah. Um, so here's the thing: is one of the dreams if you are looking at the world and looking at this marvelous, beautiful places that you want to go. One of the coolest places, I think, on the planet is a place called the Salar de Uyuni. Yeah. The Salar de Uyuni is the largest salt flat in the world. It's a it's about 4,000 square miles, which is roughly the size of the entire county of Los Angeles, or about, I think, what's is it? Yeah, Delaware. It's probably the state of Delaware. So imagine that the whole state would be a big salt flat. Forget, forget Utah. I mean, that thing, that's a playground when you think of this thing. And everybody, I wanted to go there. And as I was making my way into Bolivia, the thing you want to do is get there before it rains because that salt flat ends up getting covered in, in water, which makes it very cool because it reflects things. It's beautiful. But you don't want to be riding your GS through salt water. <laughs> you know, it'll just seize up by the time you get to San Pedro de Atacama, you know? <laughs> So I'm um, I'm cruising along, and I had met another motorcyclist from Colorado, a guy named Jeremiah. And uh, you know, I'm like, hey, I'm going to the Slar. You're going to the Slar. Let's go to the Slar. We get riding together. And the day before we finally get to San Luis Potosi, not the one in Mexico, because there's another one in Bolivia, the highest city in the world, actually. Uh, it had rained and snowed on our way there, so we're thinking we are screwed. We're not going to get there. Um, because the whole idea is you go to the Salar, you ride across the Salar, and then you eventually get into uh, northern Argentina or Chile to northern Argentina. Um, and the, the morning after those rains and we stayed a night in San Luis Potosí, the, the guy who ran the hotel says, no, no, it didn't really rain there. You guys should still go. So we go. And it's about a 200-mile road from San Luis Potosí to the edge of the salt. And between those two places, there is really nothing except some llama herders, some farmers, and maybe one outpost between the two places. It's, it's almost halfway between them, maybe a little closer to the Salar, a place called uh, Tika Tika. And we come into this building, and to the, rather, we come into this town after not seeing anybody. I mean, it's a gorgeous ride. It is like heaven on earth motorcycle riding. It's all dirt but not too crazy, you know, not too technical, but just really scenic. And the mountains are towering above you. It's, it's the Altiplano of Bolivia uh, in, in the Andes. And as we come into this little settlement, it's not even a town. It's just a few coffee-colored adobe buildings on, on either side of the road. But it's also the place anybody who's living in the hills comes down where that one bus, not the one in Finland, by the way. It's not that bus stop. The one in Susan Rock. Yeah, they, it, Grant, and, Grant and Susan weren't here, but it's the place where the, all the buses stop. And you know what happens when somebody keeps stopping and going and keeps stopping is the road gets, particularly if it had been moist or rained on, it gets all rutted. And as we come into this um, town, it is a big 
pile of mud. It is a shit show. I mean, it's like, okay, well, I'll just plow through the mud. And Jeremiah goes to the right. He's buzzing down the road. And I'm going, and my bike is sliding. It's slippery. It's, you know, my rear tire is going out like this. And all of a sudden, the front tire sinks into the mud stops the rear tire slides out from under me i go falling off the motorcycle and that gs that 650 gs that 400 and some odd pound motorcycle with 150 pounds of everything i own comes crashing down on top of me and i'm like fuck excuse the language guys sorry we are motorcyclists after all and i'm and i'm stuck under my bike because my leg is trapped under my jesse bags right the panniers and I try to get out from under that thing, Neil, and it's useless. And it's, it's, it's at that moment I realized something feels a little funny. And sure enough, my leg is broken, crushed, broken, smashed. Three places, as it turns out. So anyway, that was a turning point in my trip, and I had to figure a way to get the hell out of Tika Tika, get back to San Luis Potosi, find somebody to, 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 to give me some medical attention, and ultimately get me back to the U.S. I had MedJet Assist, you know, the uh, medical evacuation insurance. But where I was, where I crashed, there's no phone. Cell service didn't work. And they're not going to land a jet, is what you're saying. Yeah. And, and, and when I get to San Luis Potosí, I do go to the hospital where I love to say this. You know, it's funny because they do x-ray me and they prove I was right. It's broken three places. How did he get you there? Oh, so I, you know, it took like about eight hours. And then eventually there was a quote unquote ambulance that makes its route between those two places. And somebody, there is a radio telephone. You know what those are, right? A radio phone. It's something that you like ships have them and, and things like that, except in bad weather, they don't work because they're atmospheric. You know, it's like a radio, you know, you get a bad. And, um, these guys have been trying to get through on that radio phone to get this uh, ambulance, which turns out to be like a, a 1971 Suburban with the bad suspension and, and, a, and a gurney that didn't have a way to get strapped down in the back. So it was like, why, you know, is it just bouncing against the wall against the back of the thing? And I'm, I'm strapped to this thing. And anyway, I get there, they do the x-ray and then they give me, you know, the thing my leg is freaking in pain. I'm in shock. So they give me, uh, the, the a dose of the strongest medicine they have here in Bolivia. And it turns out as I figure, what is this? And it's like a, a strong dose of ibuprofen. And I think, great, here I am in one of the largest cocaine producing countries in the world. And all they can oh, give me for a, a crushed leg is Advil. I mean, come on. What, what is this? What is this? So there's an airport in Potosi. And though it's new, just was there, they built it like a year or so before, but it never was open because the people that in Potosi are too poor to afford to travel and fly. And by the way, being the highest city in the world, high in the Andes, you know, it's like over 10,000 feet there. It's a very difficult airport to fly into and fly out of because the air is so thin. And uh, but the Medjet people eventually do get a little Cessna Cub, a guy and a pilot shows up there. And uh, and I, I get, you know, it takes me like three flights in about 20 hours or so to get back to California where I uh, I'm back home and a orthopedic surgeon puts the pieces of my leg back together. And I 
sit down and, uh, you know, go through all the physical therapy and, and begin to chart my quest, my return back. When, where did you leave the bike? So I managed to find somebody online. I left it in that little Tika Tika. And, you know, there, there was a guy there that I maintained a phone number with who, who said, I'll keep an eye at it. You let me know what you want to do with it. And I found a guy, he owned a bunch of radio and TV stations in Bolivia and he had one and he was a motorcycle. He was a GS rider as well, which is how I found him. And he, um, he had a radio station in Porto C. So I get the guy who was looking at the bike to bring it to the, the home of one of the managers at that radio station. And, and for about six, seven months while I was in, rehabilitation in, in California that bike sat in his uh in his garage fantastic so was there any point in that that you decided hey I'm, I'm I don't want to do this again I mean did you think I'm not going back or were you just hell-bent on getting back no I was hell-bent on it I mean I you remember I was just into it man I hadn't even seen the slar yeah the slar de uni so when you went back no problems picking up the bike. I mean, you've rehabbed your leg. You're back in business. You've missed seven months, obviously. Yeah. No, I um, I ended up going uh, flying into Sucre, which is the capital of Bolivia. They've actually got two. It's kind of strange, but Sucre is really, and it's a UNESCO world. It's a beautiful place. My motor and and Potosi is probably about two hours from there. So I, I get there, I get in touch with the radio station people, and I'm going to go pick up the motorcycle. And of course, when I go to Potosi, uh, the battery's dead, and there's no recharging it. You know, I mean, you know, eventually I get the thing so it runs. You know, I get it turned over. But the minute I take the jumper cables off, it dies. Because there's no, uh, um, it's actually a generator, not a alternator. So where do you get a BMW battery when you're out in the middle of? Yeah, so this is funny. I um, my brother shipped one in from the states. Okay, actually. So, you know, the, the problem with this is, you know, we we're talking about. I mean, the, for anyone who hasn't got or bought the book, I mean, it is the most beautiful coffee table book with the most elegant pictures, greatest stories, beautiful recipes. One of my highlights, I think, when you had your visit with me was with my young son and his friend who came over where we let them pick out what country they wanted to do, what recipe they wanted. And I don't know if you remember, we all went off to the grocery store. I do. I loved it. We went all shopping together and we're we going to go all these ingredients is for an African meal and they prepared it. And you know, you don't know what that experience would mean to them to see you and read your book and see the recipe and make it. So, so you left Bolivia, you did Argentina, you must have shipped to Africa from what Argentina or Brazil? Yeah, I um, actually, for, uh, I went all the way up to the Amazon River and it, it, it became a logistical headache because where I was in, in, um, in Brazil, to, there, there was really no way to ship the bike to South Africa. There was ways to ship it into Europe and then to South Africa from Brazil. Um, there was a way to ship it through another city to uh, Priori, you know, uh, Joburg, Pretoria. And so what I ended up doing is taking the bike back to Buenos Aires because there was a flight that traveled twice a week directly from Buenos Aires to Cape Town. And 
that's what I decided to do because that you flew the bike over. Yeah, flew the bike from from. Uh, Super expensive. Or? At the time, I mean, it wasn't that. I mean, to to do it by boat was like about four hundred dollars cheaper. I think it cost me a grand. And, and we would have been sitting waiting for two months month. to get the boat. Yeah, a month. Yeah. A month. It was going to be a month. And I'm like, how much am I going to spend in a month? You yeah. Did you go south to north in Africa and come back out through Europe? Yeah. So I, I, I circumnavigated all of South Africa. I went into the uh, island. I call it an island, you know, the enclave nation of Lesotho which is completely surrounded by South Africa. And because I started in Cape Town, then I came back to Cape Town and then went north through Namibia, into Namibia, across the Caprivi Strip uh, into Botswana, Botswana to Zambia, Zambia into Malawi, crossed then from Malawi. You know, I went swimming in the lake there, of course, and then Lake Malawi, which, by the way, uh, shares its uh, watered uh, it's, 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 it's shares that water with Z uh, Mozambique, but anyway, into Tanzania, Tanzania, I went through the Serengeti. I couldn't ride the bike. They won't let you do that. I managed to find a, a guy who happened to be a, a Brit who had a trailer that he had built for a group of people that were paraplegics, quadriplegics that he he to 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 be able to transport their wheelchairs so they could go up to to climb Kilimanjaro. He oh, says, yeah. "You know what? I can carry your motorcycle across the Serengeti." So I got to go have that Serengeti adventure and carry the bike across without oh, getting yeah. turned. You know, because they, they won't let you in to the park. And then from there, I got let off. Uh, you know, an hour or two from the border of Rwanda. And I went through Rwanda into Kenya, Kenya to Ethiopia. Did you, did you go out to Zanzibar? Of course. Oh, I love Zanzibar. Oh. Yeah. I had a I had a tarred love affair with a Ravenhead beauty on Zanzibar one time. Yeah, beautiful yeah. place, isn't it? Yeah. 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 It was uh there's part of the island that's very kind of remote, meaning not a lot of tourists. And then there's that uh, you know, the western part of the island, the northwestern part of the island, which uh has more of the cheaper accommodations and and uh, attracts a lot of uh, young people there. So I, I love the fact that you could have these multiple experiences. I, I, um, there's a lot of five-star, very expensive resorts in the uh, Eastern part of that uh, country. Yes. And uh, I loved it. Cause I could, I rode my motorcycle in past these guards. They open up the gate. I go in there and I'm not really going to stay there. Uh, but I go in there, sit by the pool, watch all the Ravenhead beauties and order a cocktail and have it and leave <laughs> yeah, and then leave and have a five-star experience exactly so when you went did you so you must have gone did you go past the russia martian sea kilimanjaro at least oh yeah i saw it yeah yeah did i did you, did you, I did did you check out did you check out mount kenya on your way did not no because uh mount kenya would have been i'd have to cross the border on the southern end remember i went around lake victoria okay. so i didn't have a chance to do that because i really wanted to go see the mountain gorillas hmm. Up in, um, rwanda. in rwanda yeah better than rwanda than uganda yeah and 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 my guide was a guy named um francois i mean there was you know when you go on and you have to you know it's a it's a deal they only let like 500 people uh a month or so i actually i, I don't remember what the no exact number is but 
to go see the gorillas and you're only allowed to have a few hours with them. I think two hours, but you have to also have a guide and you need two guys, one in front of you with a gun and a guy behind you with a gun, just in case there's any problems with uh, wildlife. And then they know they're tracking these things because they're, they're that's why I said 500. There's, at the time, there may be 600 now, but there's so few just, of these. I just love I just love when you're doing these things in Africa and there's your guide with some hokey old rifle that wouldn't have even looked menacing in the First World War. And you're like, oh, we're going to be OK if we get attacked. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, Francois, Francois to make a noise, you know, that's true. But Francois, who was the guide. He actually worked with, um, it's not Jane, it's Di Diane, uh, uh, help me Fossey. out here. Diane Fossey. Fossey. Thank you. Diane Fossey. He actually was her assistant. Okay. And wow, what a, I mean, he could communicate with these gorillas. I mean, he really did. As she did. You were, I would imagine you would have done pretty well too, right? <laughs> well, yeah, you know, because I've always been getting involved in a lot of monkey business over my years, but then I realized these guys aren't monkeys. No, they're gorillas, much over my head. But so, no, did, yeah. how did you get to Europe from Africa? Uh, well, you know, I went up. Uh, I I was one of them. Very few people who can say uh, American, rather. A lot of people can say it, but uh, Americans, it's very difficult. American passport to get a visa to go into Sudan. So I went through Sudan, crossed Lake Nasser. Wow. And then all the way through Egypt, crossed Sinai. Okay. Yeah. 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 That's and then, you know, into Jordan, Israel, Syria. Yeah. Well, I went in yeah. I mean, Syria, I, I stood at the Syrian border one time. They couldn't get in because my driver license was out, but he used to be able to go down through there. You imagine it's today. I mean, it's just insane. Yeah. You know? It, it was very difficult for me to get in because they wouldn't let me in initially. But I took out that tent, popped up that pole again. And uh, no, I, 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 this is what I did at the, at the Jordan-Syrian border. They said, no, sorry, you need to go back to your country to get your visa. Now, the war was still a year out. Okay, so I was there a year before the war. And had I had a different, you know, if I had an African passport or something, I could have gotten in. Right so they, um, they, I pack, I put up the tent and I, I refused to leave. And eventually they did let me. But well, that's how you end up staying 17 years on the border. <laughs> Not quite that long, but it was definitely overnight. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so what did you, so did you, so you must have come out of Syria up, what, up into Cappadocia, Eastern Turkey? And then, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone had to go to Cappadocia. You got to go. And then I was in Ankara. Yeah, yeah, for quite a while, making trips to the uh, Iranian embassy or consulate. Oh, to try because 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 my goal was to go through Iran, and they kept saying tomorrow, tomorrow, and you come back. And this was this is by the way what happened with me with the, in Ethiopia actually at the um, at the crazy Sudanese embassy but they eventually did give it to me but there was no going on for iran uh, to get there and it's at that point i'd been on the road about three years and things were going crazy in the states you know with the presidential election the economy was getting trashed and i thought you know what it's time i probably got to get back and uh you know finances were running low and there's no way 
uh, there was a war breaking out in Georgia at the time, because the only other way around Iran to keep going to Asia would be through Turkey, right, then into Georgia. And then, but Georgia was, the Russians had started occupying that, like they... We couldn't get through Armenia and go that way? Or? Uh, no, the Tur there's no border because the Turks and the Armenians, and you still have to go through Iran from Armenia or into Azerbaijan. Yeah. But you still can't, uh, at, at that point, no, there was, there was it was, I, when, I looked when, at you, when you came up out of Syria, right, you would have come up the Amic Plain, so you'd have been bumping up. Did you run into the PKK when you came across? Because no. I got, I got out of the Syrian border, couldn't get in, and I just cut straight north before I cut back across to, to, um, to Cappadocia and Gorme. And I got really snarled up with the PKK. I got off the grid. I got in some mess. Turkish army were up there, a lot of machine gun nests. I got sent back a few times. and Sent back yeah, into Syria? Was... No, this was all up in eastern Turkey. Oh, okay. It was pretty disconcerting. You know, you'd go into the cafe for your ekmek and your fasulia and a little cup of chai, and there's all these just really graphic images of tourists with bloodied newspapers over what's left of them and you know, I got kind of tied up, and I didn't know if that was still going on when you came through. No. I got out and got into, by the time I got over to Cappadocia and Gorme, I mean, it was all over, but it was just up in the eastern part of Turkey, because I, I, I went straight north from Syria. I didn't know if you got into that. I was lucky. Uh, mm. I, I was definitely lucky, because, well, you know, I didn't get that close, because you were skirting the border of Syria and Turkey up in that area, right? Yeah, yeah. So I went straight to Cappadocia, but I did probably go across that plain, and then from from Cappadocia, I didn't travel further in, and I didn't go further east. So you I went back to Ankara. Then, of course, I'm sure you went. Then to Istanbul, of course. Yeah, and I shipped the bike out of Drintz, which is just on the other side of the Bosphorus. There. Where did you ship it to? I shipped it to Baltimore. So you ended your trip in Istanbul. Yep. Yeah. Was there no but, thought in your mind? You didn't sort of think, "Oh shit, I might as well just scoot across Europe and ship it out of England at that point," or were you thinking maybe I'd go back or? Yeah, I think and I was going to go back and and I had been through a lot of Europe already, not on the motorcycle, but, you know, my whole thing was to break new ground. Now, you know, in retrospect, it would have been cool to continue into Bulgaria and probably into Greece. Would have been a really great yeah, at the idea. Time, you've been on the road a long time. And but I've been three years, man. Yeah. Thankfully, and you had your tent pole if you had to wait on the board. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well there you have that yes right well listen alan carl world rider author of forks uh, quest for culture cuisine and connection um you certainly are a connector and um you've certainly seen an amazing amount of the world you've brought incredible things to us motorcyclists at home as we've lived vicariously through your journeys for going on decades now and uh, i really enjoyed getting a chance to sort of dig into some of your travels no, this um, was a lot of fun. Yeah, look fun forward meal. to Thank I think, you. picking up and doing a part two. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it.